Section 18 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3, Chapter 2, The Wars of Religion, Part 2. Machiavelli maintains that cruelty is legitimate on the part of a prince if it be employed in the interests of order and only once in a single stroke by a coup d'etat intended to secure the direction of affairs the blow must fall sudden and dreadful must teach by terror vanquish by victory and never need to be repeated and it must be succeeded by a long and mild sequence of public benefits which follow after the thunderstroke like the gentle fertilizing rain it is as i say the policy of the germans in the invaded provinces of belgium and france in our father's time it was the policy of napoleon the third and a modern writer has been found to advocate this operation de police en peu rude but no man not even the kaiser ever applied it so thoroughly as that trembling mother that weak woman catherine de medici her utter devotion to her sons gave her a great influence over them and her terror made her eloquent she persuaded her half-mad poet of a son the king charles the ninth that his friend coligny had a plot against him and indeed who knows that may have been true for had not coligny plotted to kidnap the king's elder brother francis the second the husband of mary queen of scots and then out of fear and falsehood and a woman's mad impulsiveness the appalling order was given to massacre the admiral and his six hundred gentlemen and their servants and followers some two thousand people in all and as many more as might be of the protestant professors doctors tradespeople and mechanics at that moment more than usually at their ease in paris on account of their prince's wedding and of the new friendship between coligny and the young king that unimaginable crime was ordered and executed more or less for though some twenty thousand were slain in paris and the other towns of france yet many escaped and among them henry of navarre the future henry the fourth the future idol of the french nation the massacre was applauded by the king of spain the national enemy and almost accepted by the queen of england who protested it is true yet stood godmother in the following year to a french royal babe and resumed her negotiations for a possible marriage with a french royal prince who was to turn protestant before his wedding and bring with him wrested from spain the low countries as a dowry into england the inquisition struck a medal of the saint bartholomew to commemorate the great and glorious event and the huguenots naturally seeing the construction to be placed on peace broke out again in war and the king died within two years of sheer horror and nervous collapse muttering to his old nurse his old huguenot nurse blood blood que de sang but on the whole when we peruse the documents of the time we are astonished rather at the slight effect of an event which has never since ceased to thrill the world with horror and loathing which has injured so desperately the fair fame of france and left so deep a mark in history 
i suppose if you were to ask the man in the street what he remembers of french history he would reply joan of arc the massacre of st bartholomew versailles the french revolution and napoleon yet this capital event brought about no great result unless it were to sicken the country with civil war no country can go mad for more than a certain time a dozen years of battle had ruined france thousands of villages were reduced to ashes the grass grew over the rutted disused roads the two broken halves of the fractured bridges appeared to lift up their arms to heaven in protest and the streets were full of the halt the maimed and the poor who begged their bread from door to door and slept among the tombs in the cemeteries the end was not yet and not for many years but already between the two extremes of public passion a new party grew and increased the moderates the politique did not the wise montaigne affirm to the historian de tout that henri of navarre was no protestant and guise no catholic the time came at last when it was for france a question of peace or death when both the king henry the third and his heir the king of navarre were bent on peace and yet the land distraught by too many rancours could not settle down in quiet but went maddeningly on in its insensate vendettas and then a strange thing took place the catholic party the party of absolute monarchy forsook the king henry the third had no direct heir his successor-in-law would be henry of navarre the murdering protestant as they would say in ireland and in view of so dire a consequence the ultra-catholics formed themselves into a league from fifteen eighty six to fifteen ninety six france was really governed inasmuch as it was governed at all in the north and in the big towns by this league and in the federalist home ruler south and west by the organization of the protestant cause france seemed in danger of separating in twain the doctrines of the league out huguenoted the huguenot by their political audacity the leaguers wrote to the pope we are jealous of the honour of god and of the antique glory of france we are born frenchmen not slaves catholics not calvinists and just as passionately as agrippa d'aubigne they argued that the king was only king en vertu du consentement de tous they maintained that there exists a tacit contract between the sovereign and the nation a pact which at any moment may be revised and just as the protestants struck a medal for conde with the inscription roi des fidèles so the leaguers offered the crown to another prince of the royal race that duke of guise who had organized the massacre of st bartholomew and after his assassination proposed to seat in his stead on the throne of france a daughter of the king of spain so deep in the mind of france abides the conception that kings only reign by virtue of the will of the people what would have happened if france had then abandoned the principle of an hereditary monarchy would france have become a dependence of spain the charm the prestige the natural authority and grace the timely conversion of henry of navarre saved the situation 
France may well idolize the memory of Henri IV. He brought into that bedlam of senseless strife such a breath of good sense, gaiety, courage, stoical endurance, love of realities, and happy moderation, as showed France in a vision her own true image, and chased the fanatics and the phantoms afar. It seems strange indeed that this most human and most humane of princes should have been the cousin and the contemporary of those morbid, half-mad, ghastly sons of Catherine de' Medici, and great-great-grandsons of Valentina Visconti. The King of Navarre, gay, prudent, economical, brave, practical, alert, seems separated from them by a gulf of centuries seems in fact a frenchman of to-day his book of devotion was not machiavelli's prince but a manual of country life and rural economy the theatre d'agriculture of olivier de serre every day he listened to it for half an hour we know his wish the wish of a poor man who had often gone hungry that every farmer in france should have a fowl in his pot a sundays he loved the land and he loved the common people, and would have said, as Sully, his friend and minister, said, the pastures and the ploughland are the two breasts of the state. No landscape in the world, said he again, is so fine a piece of scenery as a field of corn at harvest time, ripe for the cutting. Essentially realistic, Henry IV put the substantial facts of this world before whatever charter or map his fancy and his faith had drawn of the invisible sphere beyond when he found that as a protestant he could not despite his claims and titles and his right divine make himself acceptable to the majority of his subjects he did as clovis had done long before he entered the church of his people paris is worth a mass he said paris vaut bien une messe but he did not forget the old faith in adopting the new he showed himself the grandson of the tolerant, gracious, free-minded Margaret of Angoulême. By the Edict of Nantes, if he proclaimed the supremacy of the Catholic Church, he secured the liberties and rights of Protestants. Henceforth, the disabilities of dissenters were removed, and they were admitted to the charges of the state. Was not Sully himself an Huguenot? there was a sort of home rule for protestants they had their seats in parliament their towns and castles governed by their own principles and wearied out ruined devastated by thirty years of civil war the nation accepted peace henry the fourth had only now to conquer spain there too he was successful the spaniards allied with the ultra-catholics of france the league had sought to wrest the crown from Henry and to place on the throne of France a Spanish princess. But just ten years after the defeat of the Armada and our own English triumph, and in the very year of the Edict of Nantes which established peace in France, the French king in 1598, victorious over all his enemies, forced the Spaniards to sign the Peace of Vervins and terminated by a transaction in which france had distinctly the advantage a rivalry that had lasted eighty years in the age-long duel between france and the house of austria this is the end of the first act 
the principle of absolute authority the reign of rome the domination of the inquisition restrained and controlled in france and england alike seemed henceforth relegated to the central empire in france england holland in scandinavia and in the lutheran states of germany freedom should reign henri iv had the vision of a confederation of fortunate states united in amity balancing spain austria and the empire those great reservoirs of absolutism by the prosperity of their trading democracy he imagined the united states of europe and this perhaps was his most striking originality nations in those days were goods and chattels they were given with a daughter's dowry bequeathed to a son with his inheritance it seemed quite just and fair that france should ask for navarre and milan england make good her rights to aquitaine spain rule in belgium austria in burgundy henry first saw the life of peoples with an unprejudiced eye this child of nature discerned the full iniquity of the claims of kings his new project was to respect nationalities he said let the spanish-speaking countries belong to the spaniards and the germans to the germans but i want all the french and he cast a longing eye over lorraine savoy franche comte which ought to have been his evidently no hegemony whether of austria or of another no universal tyrant but a society of nations such was the dream of henri iv and had he lived the thing might have come to pass so great was the force of attraction that radiated from a king whose good sense was almost genius whose cordial kindness was little less than charity he hoped to force the austrian to evacuate the netherlands forming in his stead a republic of the low countries he planned another commonwealth in switzerland a third in venice genoa and tuscany should fuse in a fourth these four democracies should be balanced by five hereditary kingdoms france england spain sweden and lombardy and there should be six elective sovereignties the empire the papacy denmark and the frontier states of hungary poland bohemia europe's bulwark against the turk meanwhile in a few years he restored the finances of france and her well-being the roads were rebuilt and planted with trees even now the fine old centenary elms are called des Sully, in memory of henry's minister he established mills and works and furnaces for the manufacture of glass carpets cloth and especially silk if the silk trade of france brings in today some four hundred millions of francs in the year it is a legacy of the brave gay practical monarch so besotted with the welfare of his people that he planted even his gardens of the tuileries with mulberry trees for the silkworms and gave up a part of his palace of the louvre as a permanent exhibition or palace of industry in which to show the latest inventions and machines with lodgings for such artisans as should come from the provinces to show their models he built the place royale to-day the place des vosges whose porticos were originally destined to exhibit a permanent show of silken manufactured goods he built the tapestry mills of the gobelins he built the pont neuf where his statue still stands and all the streets of the marais and the place dauphine 
and how much else of the paris we admire he was scheming and building the foreign prosperity and peace of france when the dagger of a mad fanatic one ravaillac crazed by the sermons of embittered priests cut short the king's career total eclipse of all the schemes and projects of that brilliant reign the heir to the throne louis the thirteenth was eight years old the queen regent another medici and without the brains of catherine her minister a priest him who we know as cardinal de richelieu france turned her coat left the paths of pleasantness and peace left off farming and spinning began fighting again and indeed to some extent renewed her civil wars france was no longer democratic nor liberal yet so imperious are the needs of a political situation which indeed is often the result of a geographical situation that her aim no less in the seventeenth than in the sixteenth century will be the abasement of the house of habsburg the limiting and lopping of the empire and above all the struggle with spain richelieu and louis quatorze absolutists and ultra catholics will pursue this task no less perseveringly and no less arduously than henri iv if not by the same paths they tend to the same goal and that goal they attain france will be covered with ruins having paid in war loans and taxes and indemnities over and over again more than she possessed but france ragged mutilated will at any rate rise from the struggle triumphant her foe breathes no more considered as a political entity spain thenceforth is dead and france the leader of the world End of section 18.